Thursday, February 28th, 2019. This is the Hermetic Hour. I'm your host, Poke Runyon. And tonight we review and discuss the Eighth Tower by the late UFO investigator John A. Keel, 1930-2009. He was most noted as the author of the Mothman Prophecies. That was also published in 1975, just like The Eighth Tower. And it was made into a film in 2002. Keel was more interested in monster sightings like the Mothman and Bigfoot than he was in UFOs, but he believed that the two phenomena were related and emanated from the same source. He was an ardent successor to Charles Fort, The Book of the Damned, 1919, and also Lowe, 1920, which was a collection of fantastic anomalies such as UFO sightings, monster sightings, and other fantastic events like rains of frogs and fish and ghost ship sightings, mostly newspaper clippings collected from the beginning of the Industrial Age to the First World War. Like Charles Fort, John Keel was a journalist who continued the collection from the 1920s through the UFO era. Now, The Eighth Tower is a Fortian book, but with an agenda that Fort was very cryptic about. What do all these strange things mean? Fort concluded that we, humankind, are property. Keel expanded on that. After continuing Fort's bizarre collection of anomalies, he brings in Carl Jung's collective unconscious, the world soul, universal mind, and the seven demonic towers of the Yazidis, and he postulates an eighth tower that is a sort of an Empyrean god force over the rest. Now, this is not an easy book to get through, but it will take you down the rabbit hole. So, join with us for some Fortean adventuring. Unfortunately, most millennials have never heard of Charles Fort, the journalist who collected and published a two-volume encyclopedia of anomaly reports, such as UFO sightings, close encounters with monsters, and supernatural creatures, and strange events like rains of frogs and fish, etc. But Fort is essential reading for any current investigator into UFOs and or any other mysterious phenomenon. In this particular venue, John A. Keel was Charles Fort's successor, and The Eighth Tower, which was published in 1975, is in many ways an updated sequel to The Book of the Damned and Lowe, which were published in, in 1920. Fort's books are currently available in reprint and should be in the library of any serious student of the unexplained. After collecting his array of sightings and encounters, Fort had included that we are property. That's a line which the 107-year-old Nazi vampire and subterranean Darrow Zoltan Nudescu quoted to the Grand Master of the Draconians and then added, and now you know who your owners are. This is a scene from our 2014 film, Beyond Lemuria, second edition which is available on DVD from Amazon. And be sure you get the second edition, because the first one came out in 2007, and the second edition has more material that, that uh, closer to the point. 
So be sure and get the second edition. This also brings up a point. Fort certainly influenced Richard Schaefer, who in turn influenced John Keel, who in turn influenced George Lucas' concept of the Force, which was an extrapolation of Wilhelm Reich's orgone energy, as this passage from the Eighth Tower reveals. In a hundred laboratories scattered around the world, scores of scientists are now recovering recovering the steps of Dr. Reich, that's Wilhelm Reich, rediscovering the mysterious forces that he observed and tried to interpret. Reich thought sex lay at the bottom of everything, so he postulated the existence of orgone, an energy radiated by lovers at the moment of orgasm. And the Food and Drug Administration apparently regarded orgasms as downright un-American, even though religionists had been talking about the same thing for centuries. The theological concept being based on the power of love. If we all loved one another, we've been told our crummy little planet would be surrounded by a golden aura and would turn into a paradise. Somehow, we have never quite managed that. Dr. Reich actually figured out ways to shoot UFOs down with beams of energy. He assumed that Earth was bathed in a complex energy fields, and he tried to find ways to tap all that energy. Again, students of the occult had been discussing this very thing long before they had any technical definitions. The ancient art of astrology was based on the notion that earthlings are somehow influenced by energy from the cosmos. The magical arts, too, understood and tried to utilize these energy sources. And if you generated the right kind of energy from your physical person, you could attract or repel the cosmic energies. The human mind was credited with the ability to concentrate these energies and focus them on a single point. If a mystic could visualize a chair and clearly see the image of every atom in that chair, well, a chair would spring into being. It would materialize. And to make it disappear, you just reverse the process. Entities, seemingly living beings, could also be wished into existence. Tibetan lamas reportedly had the power uh, to produce such thought forms. The problem according to the lore, is that such creations could get out of control like Frankenstein's monster and turn against their creator. In fact, we can't seem to win. Almost every aspect of this arcane business ultimately proves destructive to the unwary practitioner. And if we welcome angels, demons, and spacemen with cups of coffee and kind words, they will still slip a cosmic shiv between our shoulder blades the moment our back is turned. Conversely, if we chase the entities with clubs and guns, they will get even too. And there are many gruesome documented cases in which the vengeful saucer pilots, cloven-hoofed monsters, and red-eyed angels have wrecked havoc on their would-be pursuers and tormentors. And a few such cases will be outlined further on. Dr. Reich saw these things as the ultra-terrestrial population of a hidden world of raw energy. And at this moment, you are surrounded by all kinds of energy, much of it man-made, vibrating on every frequency, 
from the ultra-high frequencies of modern military radios to the very low frequencies of generators and telephone lines. There are many other forms of energy mixed in as well. And there are, as we shall see, forms of energy on such high frequencies they cannot be detected, even with our most sophisticated scientific instruments. If your eyes were tuned beyond the very narrow confines of the spectrum of visible light, you would find yourself looking into a thick fog of dazzling unreal colors. Some psychics and UFO uh, perceptionists have described these occult colors, and they have been used to symbolize the supernatural entities. If you could peer into this super spectrum, you would undoubtedly see some frightening things, strange shapes and eerie ghost-like forms moving through a sea of electrical energy like fish in some alien sea. When the levels of energy in this field are changed or somehow influenced by us, the whole character of these superspectrum entities is altered. This is where we start getting into the force here. They are also affected by sudden changes in the Earth's magnetic field, and that field changes often. And by the interchange of earthly energy with the powerful fields of space, in its mad rush across the cosmos, the Earth is constantly passing through different energy fields, like a train traveling across Europe and passing through many different countries. Radio astronomers are just now becoming aware of these energies, although occultists have been referring to them for centuries. The standard definition of God, God is light, is just a simple way of saying that God is energy. Use the force, Luke. I, I said that, but you didn't. Electromagnetic energy. He is not a he, but an it, a field of energy that permeates the entire universe and perhaps feeds off the energy generated by its component parts. Your own memory, which is nothing more than an electrical circuit in your brain, could be feeding this cosmic brain, and a thousand years from now, some super psychic might be able to tune in to the specific frequency of your mind and glimpse the residue of your life and all of those rotten things you've been doing. The concept of a supermind running the universe objectively without compassion is not new. Several religions are built around it. Thinking of God in these terms is not heresy, but is advanced theology. The old-time God, a big bearded man sitting on the throne in the sky, is dead. He committed suicide a few years ago when thousands of people began to see lights in the sky again, and like Saul, was trapped in, in blinding beams. The results are plainly visible in the social changes around us. The human race is being reprogrammed. Young people everywhere suddenly become pacifists. In the 1960s, after a millennium of violence, our world was invaded, but not by the hordes of Martians and Venusians envisioned by the flying saucer believers. We were invaded by new ideas and a new inner structure that would help guide us. 
through the anticipated crisis of the 1990s. A Canadian psychiatrist, Dr. Richard M. Buck, put it this way in 1990, excuse me, in 1900. The simple truth is that there has lived on the earth, appearing at intervals for thousands of years among ordinary men, the first faint beginnings of another race, walking the earth and breathing the air with us, but at the same time walking another earth and breathing the air of which we know little or nothing, but which is all the same. Our spiritual life as its essence would be our spiritual death. This new race is in the act of being born from us, and in the near future it will occupy and possess the earth. And, of course, this is the, the plot for uh, uh, for Arthur C. Clarke's Childhood's End, which we'll get into in a little while. Christianity was not born with the life of Christ, but with his death. And the fanaticism of men like St. Paul, who were reprogrammed by blinding light, lights in the desert. The world of the year A.D. 2000 has already begun, and in a like manner, beams of cosmic energy have shed their awful glare across the planet, and the children of the 1960s now belong to another very special race. The children of that other age face 2,000 years of bloodshed, with millions dying in the name of religion. Tomorrow's children face another kind of menace, a world of peace with itself, but in ecological ruins where famine, overpopulation, and hitherto unknown social pressures will force us into a new dark age. Just as the archaeologists discredited Moses and Shapira and the astronomers assaulted Velikovsky, the older generation has watched the arrival of a new age with a mixture of fear and disdain. They remain programmed in the old ways, embracing immorality in business, war, politics, while denouncing bathing suits and boring amateurish pornographic films, which interestingly are mostly ignored by the young and patronized by the middle-aged. Well, that, that has a certain amount of, of uh, truth to it. Now, a few years ago, a former vice president, Spiro Agnew, delivered one of his celebrated speeches attacking not the media or those natoring nabobs of negativism, but a gentle psychologist named B.F. Skinner. He was not gentle. Skinner is a behavioral scientist concerned with the future direction of the human race and painfully aware of tomorrow's problems. In his book, Beyond Freedom and Dignity, which I didn't read because there is nothing beyond freedom and dignity, he proposed a dramatic plan to reprogram the man-animal, pointing out that man has always been programmed by his environment, even while he struggled to change it. But in a future where there will be too many people and too few natural resources, science may have to find ways to change man so he can survive in this new and rather unpleasant world. 
Mr. Agnew, it seems, wanted to skin Skinner as some kind of emotional fascist. The truth, however, is that man has constantly been programmed and reprogrammed throughout history. Adolf Hitler changed the German people by giving them a new set of myths about racial superiority. I don't think Hitler did that. But most of the old systems are certain to break down in the face of tomorrow's pressures. And Skinner is suggesting that we evolve a new system of behavior to enable us to cope with these pressures. Mr. Agnew was dedicated to resisting change, although he sat on the inner councils that were plucking young men out of their natural environment, reprogramming them to be merciless killers and sending them off to Southeast Asia. Agnew saw Skinner's plan as a threat to individual freedom. His listeners, most of whom were already programmed to hate eggheads like Skinner, mentally frothed at the mouth. To them, Skinner was uh, was another hoaxer like Moses Shapira with a suitcase full of unacceptable evidence. Now, before we leave this, um, this is obviously a super liberal uh, view. Point this out. Agnew did not discredit Skinner. Skinner was discredited by another liberal, Noam Chomsky. Because Noam Chomsky proved that we were born with a grammar machine and we didn't learn, and babies did not learn everything by putting their fingers on the stove and getting burned, like Skinner believed. Skinner believed that everything was learned by by stimulus and response. And this was the basis for... Uh, the basis for brainwashing the Manchurian candidate concept, and 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 it is also the basic rationale for political correctness. And the idea is in political correctness, if somebody because you're going to change human nature, it is human nature. It is human nature to to um, dislike something different than yourself or someone different than yourself. That's human nature. In order to change that. Uh, whenever, whenever somebody makes a makes a uh, a remark, a prejudicial remark of any kind, uh, then they they're stigmatized and their life is virtually ruined. And it isn't that the the, the teaching them anything. You're not teaching them anything. But 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 everyone else sees what what's happening to them, and everyone else is terrified. And that's the programming. People are not destroyed by political correctness uh, to, to, to help them. That, that's not the purpose of political correctness. It's to frighten other people. That's Skinneristic programming. In other words, making them into little Manchurian candidates. And, uh, and this is why uh, I don't agree with Keel at all in, in any of this. Like I said, uh, I didn't read Freedom and Dignity because, as far as I'm concerned, there, there is nothing beyond Freedom and Dignity. Now, Bobby Fisher is a man, back to back to, uh, to Keel. Bobby Fisher is a man obsessed with the game of chess. When someone talks to him about another subject, he will listen impatiently and then demand, what has that got? We all know people living with magnificent obsessions. They spend all their waking hours thinking about a single subject to the exclusion of everything else. So what is an obsession? 
It's a form of programming that has gotten completely out of hand. Either that or he has Asperger's. <laughs> Religious fanatics are a prime example, and as are those people who become enveloped in a political concept. Yeah, yeah, like Keel here. Most of man's progress has come about as a result of obsessions. The Wright brothers were not just thinkers with an idea. Their idea swallowed them up. And most leaders are obsessed with power or possessed by egos so large that their only concern is their place in history. And I have known writers obsessed with a single object, like Bobby Fischer and chess. Anything that and everything outside their subject seems meaningless. Well, and in my case, and I, I, I may be obsessed with, with human freedom and dignity. <laughs> Uh, any any uh, any art form, music, painting, dance, is done best by those who are completely possessed by it. Such possession often borders on madness. This world would be a sorry place without such madmen. And of course, one of those madmen was Richard Schaefer, who very much influenced uh, John A. Keel, as we will see. Okay, so theorizes that the force permeates the superspectrum or the universal mind and is visualized by holy light. All of this is very hermetic, and its end result reminds us of Arthur C. Clarke's childhood's end, which Keel also mentions. In his 1953 novel, Childhood's End, Arthur C. Clarke envisioned a future in which all human children would possess psychic abilities. And at a given point in time, our planet would be evacuated, deserted by consciousness. As all human souls rose from their fragile physical bodies and joined the supermind, it seems like science fiction writers, like a science fiction writer's pipe dream, twenty years ago. But now we are suddenly very close to that magical time, the long-promised harvest of the happy Hopi Indians. We are becoming collectively aware of the electromagnetic fence that seals us from these other realities. A whole generation has now assaulted the gates using everything from the hallucinogenic drugs to the tarot, to tarot cards in their search for Godhead and unity with the supermind. Scores of new religions have sprung up overnight, led by the new prophets answering the voices in their heads and promising true religious experience to their followers. Now, let me say this. We, we, we actually did a Hermetic Hour show on Childhood's End, and, and uh, the Sci-Fi Channel uh, actually did a, did a uh, mini-series based on it. And what it essentially is, is the fallen angels. The fallen angels come down to Earth, and, and they look like demons, they're they're physically they're very uh, very much very demonic with big bat like wings and and devilish faces and, and all this and uh, and they're trying to help to help humanity achieve this blending into the super mind of the universal mind and 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 finally the uh, just as as Teal described there the uh, the young people especially the children they all come start dancing dancing uh 
in, in these big conga lines, and 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 then they become they become more and more etheric until they finally vanish into the light, and they're gone. They're 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 gone, and and uh, this is kind of terrifying. It really is terrifying, and there's only one human being left, and and they take him. The, the fallen angels take him up to their their planet, and he wants to go back to Earth. And and he goes back to Earth, and he's the last human being, and all the rest, everybody else is gone. Everybody's been absorbed into the light, and here's the last human being sitting there on the planet, you know, all alone, and 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 it's it's frightening, and and yet and yet this is in so many ways. This is so many mystics have this conception of heaven, and this is not this is not. Uh, uh, this is this is not the conception of heaven that we have in the Hermetic tradition at all, and because uh, we believe in reincarnation, and we believe in returning returning to the to the earth, uh, and uh, and eventually eventually perhaps we might be absorbed by the by the Godhead. But this but this is the, 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 this childhood Zen should be read, uh, and frankly, I don't think that the uh, the film version of it that Sci-Fi Channel ran is not really this uh, doesn't doesn't really get this frightening message across. But um, uh, quite frankly, it's 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 rather terrifying. And yet, I know as as a magician, I am very much aware that there are a lot of people uh, who really think that this is this is what they want to do. They want to merge with the light and. And uh, this is a this is a rather frightening uh, frightening concept. And um, there recently, the technological aspect of this, and uh, which which you might, we might also consider, recently there was a film made. John Cusack and and, uh, and uh, Samuel Jackson made this film called Cell, and it's. If, if it's all these young people mesmerized by their cell phones, and they do the same thing as as uh, as Arthur C. Clarke had them doing in, in Childhood's End, they all go marching toward the cell phone towers, and and they're just they're gone. They're they're there's they're 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 zombies. It it is it's a terrifying film. And um, okay, so Keel puts forth the theory. They were all programmed from the towers. The eighth tower is the highest. But unfortunately, this programming makes us all, as I say, Manchurian candidates for evil or for good. And Keel refers to B.S. Skinner in that. Uh, now, Keel derives the eighth tower title from the Yazidi legend of the seven towers, which he derives from William Seabrook's 1920 Adventures in Arabia. Which which leads into an introduction to the Shaver mystery on the legend of Agartha. Now let me go to page one ninety three and one ninety five, and we'll get into that <laughs> because okay, this is chapter nineteen in the book. Stretching across Asia from northern Manchuria through Tibet, west through Persia, and ending in Kurdistan was a chain of seven towers on isolated mountaintops. William Seabrook wrote in his Adventures in Arabia, and in each of these towers sat continually a priest of Satan, who, by broadcasting occult vibrations, controlled
control the destinies of the world for evil. Actually, this is a Yazidi. Uh, the, the seven towers are a Yazidi. Um, uh, it's derived from the Yazidis. And um, who have been slandered and, and as they're really not Satanists, but uh, uh, but but the rest of the, the the Arab world thinks that they are and persecutes them. And we recently saved them saved them from genocide. The the the, the rest of the Arab world are going to destroy them. They've wanted to destroy them for for uh, thousands of years. Uh, but this but the the uh, then the, the eighth tower in Seabrook's notion is is actually uh the tower of god that's the tower where the force resides and 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 uh sort of the empyrean uh sphere if, if you will i'll continue with the chat thoughtful men have always uneasily recognized that some superhuman force seems to manipulate human events and subtly guide human history it was a natural step to divide such manipulations into two parts. The good, pro-human events are credited to the gods, while the bad, anti-human events are blamed on assorted demons and devils. It gradually became clear that the bad events outnumbered the good, so it was obvious that the demons were pretty much in control. The earliest myths of Africa, Asia, South America, myths produced by completely isolated cultures, contain many interesting correlations. They claim that in the beginning, men were actually enslaved by the gods. We were like cattle in a pen, forced to build senseless monuments for the use of our masters and even to sacrifice our physical bodies to them. Many cultures continued these ritual sacrifices into this century. Even the Old Testament of the Bible carefully depicts God as a vengeful, jealous, egotistical tyrant who frequently punished man with horrible disasters. When we emerged from the Dark Ages, we began to search for new demons who could be held responsible for the mess we were in. Religion slowly receded into the background, and our devil theories became more sophisticated. The Orient was particularly rich with devil theorists. The story of Seabrook's seven towers occupied by chanting Satanists was only one of their inventions. Visiting angels materialized before awed prophets in every generation and planted the seeds of racial prejudice. The Jews and the blacks were the most popular scapegoats, but there were many others. Mystical human organizations and secret societies began to share the blame. The Catholics muttered about the Freemasons, while the Jewish factions looked suspiciously toward the Vatican. And, in fact, the Society of Jesus the Jesuits did get involved in the political plots in the 18th century. A pathetic little band of men who believed in such revolutionary ideas as freedom of the press and religious freedom, and who called themselves the Illuminati, horrified the church-dominated countries of Europe, and were ruthlessly hunted down and slaughtered. That's not true. The 13th president of the United States, a fellow named Millard Fillmore, later ran for office on the anti-Catholic platform of the aptly named Know Nothing Party. 
He distinguished himself by installing the first bathtub in the White House. Throughout Mongolia and Tibet, there are myths describing the all-powerful king of the world who lives in a fabulous underground city high in the Himalayas. His minions, nasty but relatively normal-looking gentlemen in black garments, sally forth from the city occasionally to stir things up among the surface dwellers. The Shaver Mystery, which was the prelude to the Flying Saucer Wave in 1947, claims that Darrow's detrimental robots live in underground caves and control us through the use of fiendish rays. A writer named Richard Shaver introduced Darrowdom in a series of novelettes published in Amazing Stories beginning in 1944. Editor Ray Palmer was astonished when he received thousands of letters from readers who testified that they had personal experiences with the Darrows. But if you ask any policeman, you will find that one of the most universal of complaints is the paranoid belief that someone is aiming deadly rays at the apartment or the home of the complainer. The Shaver mystery gave thousands of lonely misfits a frame of reference, a devil theory, and their own misfortunes. Yet it was rather uncanny that Shaver somehow foresaw the appearance of flying saucers, men in black, and many other accoutrements of the UFO age. And of course, I was, as a 16-year-old, I was deep into Shaver, and and uh, right around the corner from my house, uh, Marie Reeser burned up from the inside out, spontaneous human combustion. And I was so deep into Shaver at the point, I thought, whoa, the arrows were aiming at me, and, and, and they hit her by mistake. Of course, that's the idea. That, that derives from the idea that the, the Darrows are monitor the universal mind. And, of course, if you know about them, they know about you. Um, in the 1920s and 30s, the legend of the international bankers, well, let's don't get into that. The, uh, I believe Keel's source for most of this, most of what he's talking about, his original source, was a 1948 Shaver mystery novel, not by Shaver, but by S.J. Byrne, Prometheus II in Amazing Stories probably heavily edited by Raymond A. Palmer, because, of course, Palmer, Palmer edited a lot of Shaver stuff to, uh, to make it conform to the way he wanted the Shaver mystery to go. And in this work, the seven towers were used as stations in an initiation into the Shaver mystery. This, by the way, Prometheus II was the first, the first Shaver story I ever read. And so I vividly remember this this uh, Seven Towers initiation sequence. And uh, I'm sure Keel was very much, very much affected by it. And the author added to the Tower legend the legend of the king of the world from Agartha, a subterranean city in Central Asia, which was featured in Ferdinand Ossendowski's Beasts, Men, and Gods, a 1922 bestseller. In reference to that, Asandowski's source, The Kingdom of Agartha, which was published, where they're finally published in an English translation in 2008, was written originally back in the, 19, in the, in the, in the early 1900s by, by Eves 
De La Havre, the French author, late 19th century revelations about a Agartha, which caused a sensation in Europe. And it wrote on the coattails of Madame Blavatsky's theosophy, but was finally declared a hoax. Now, Ray Palmer was probably responsible for including it in the Saber Mystery. And um, what I'm going to do here is kind of a, uh, a kind of a treat for the rest of the, the hour here. I'm going to read from Prometheus 2. And by the way, Prometheus 2, if you want to enjoy this full tower initiation, be initiated through all the towers and, and uh, visit Agartha, uh, Prometheus 2 has also been reprinted, and it's been reprinted by the same publishing house that's uh, that's doing the Shaver Mystery. So you can find it. You can go on Amazon and look up Prometheus 2 by S.J. Byrne, and you'll see it's available in, in paperback. And so, but let me uh, let me uh, give you a taste of it here. We'll take you back to my. 16 years old, finding and, and and of course I had to buy the book secondhand then because it was 19, uh, you know, it was February 1948 that it was published, and I didn't buy it until 1950, and so I had to get it at the old secondhand bookstore uh, in St. Pete where where um, my friends and Lynn Carter and I all hung out at this Haslam's bookstore and get these old pulp magazines for amazing stories. Anyway. Let me uh, let me get to the first tower. Hang on. Okay. Uh, in this novel, which may have had some influence on the Matrix, because because uh, the the Kent, the the young American who is initiated in this in this novel, is kind of like uh, the character in in uh, in uh, that Edward Norton plays in 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 the Matrix, where he's the one, and and also uh, you know. Uh, darker than you think. Quite this is this is a this is a common a common plot in science fiction in in well science fantasy science, is is the uh, the normal the regular the regular uh, protagonist is a regular guy who actually has a has a special destiny and can't have that. So this is uh, this is chapter nine. The prophecy holds. And the prophecy that we're referring to here is the prophecy that the king of the world will come up out of Agartha. I don't, don't recall the exact date, but uh, but it would be about 15 years from now, as I recall. In Agartha, beneath the youngest mountains of the world, the most advanced scientists on earth, or beneath its surface, were bustling with activity. In a certain cavern, which was filled with colossal machines that were almost as ancient as the young mountains, six of their number busied themselves earnestly over a myriad of delicate controls. Behind them stood a tall, vigorous, youthful-looking man who was yet old with centuries of wisdom. He stood patiently and watched them. It was the beginning of a new era for Agartha. For the prophecy this man made years ago was coming true. The king of the world smiled to himself at the strangeness of truth, which surpasses imagination. A common surface man had suddenly risen in an hour of need and appeared to possess powers that might even prove useful to Agartha. The time had arrived for the fulfillment of the prophecy, for this new Prometheus 
was soon to join forces with those who represented man's last hope. One of the scientists who worked at the hugely powerful thought beam machine, Kellogg, suddenly bent forward over the controls of another machine at his side and watched the teleprojection machine in front of him. I have the contacts, he announced to the others. Watch. The other scientists immediately left their own machines and came to the aid of their companion. One of their numbers silently took his place up at the other control panels beside the teleprojector. In the screen, there formed a vision of Germain in his cell at Santa Cruz. In front of Germain, they could see the image of Adaro talking with him. They saw also the images of the cavern hell, which were being shown to him. They are going to disarray him, said one of the scientists. Quick then, said the king of the world. Use the teletransporter. It is the only chance. The king, remembering the prophecy, had confidence that the newly supercharged transportation mech vibrations would be able to reach Germain and the second scientist who had taken over the controls next to the teleprojector now sprang into action. And behind the phalanx of tremendous machines, a certain metallic cell began to glow with energy. And across the world went the invisible bridge of beam vibration, vibrations minus quanta, hundred hungry vibrations, seeking the quanta of energy, which would complete and then make them true waves. After some seeking, the end of this beam focused upon Bolivia, and then upon the Zone 7, and then upon Santa Cruz, and finally upon Germain. Concentration up 700, said the scientist. One of his companions swung a dial and watched gauges. 700 increased, responded the latter. Energized, cried the king of the world. And what followed occurred one split second before the Darrow fired their death blow at Germain. The matter of Germain's physical being was vibrated so rapidly that his components gained mass, and they gained so much mass that the tiniest fraction of a second that the equation of relativity took effect. Now, where matter turned into energy and had Germain remained in a state of pure energy for more than a fraction of a second, he would probably never have lived again. For a while he was in that state, he was dead, completely annihilated. But the godlike beings who had made the teleportation mech had discovered that life, mind, and soul are apparently subject uh, to laws akin to inertia. They do not snap out instantaneously. No matter how violently a person may be destroyed or shattered, his mind, spirit, and all of them, hover for a moment with the remains. And it was that fraction of a second of life's inertia which had made the the teletransporter possible. For before life, mind, and spirit departed, the teletransporter ceased its vibrating and thus allowing energy, which had been matter, now in a state of quanta, to become matter again. And while in a state of energy, the 
transporting waves that throw the quanta back to the generating mechanism. Separate beams working parallel with the transporter always copied the image of the subject in three-dimensional form, the special force held which was used as the receiver, and the receiver quanta were then forced to return into the same relationship as before, and the end result was the transportation through the aether of, of the object, ending in a perfect physical materialization, mind and spirit took up where they had left off but a fraction of a second previously. And, of course, <laughs> about 25 years later, this all came down to beam me up, Scotty. <laughs> Germain had no way of knowing that in less than a second he had been transported from Santa Cruz to somewhere inside the Himalayas. He shuddered from his recent experience and tried to gather his wits. When he looked around, he found himself seated on the polished floor of a glass-enclosed chamber. Some very decent-looking chaps in white robes were opening up the cage. Their robes were of clearest, clearest white, and all the robes were emblazoned with the, on the back with a great golden sword. Behind them stood an amazing fellow who was at least a head taller than any of the others. He wore a golden-yellow robe, which was held together by a belt that had green emeralds for tassels. He looked as though he could have answered any questions a man ever had to ask. This fellow looked at him with eyes that seemed to be able to see into the marrow of his bones. Germain sent his mind out to him, but he was met with a great white mental wall. Life could have blasted it. He knew, but he caught an unmistakable feeling of friendliness, a pure lack of deceit and vanity and selfishness, which had always found which he which he had always found before in some measure in the minds of others. You're among the sincerest friends you ever had, came the king of the world's thoughts, booming quite powerfully into his mind. We have sent for you because we need you as much as you need us. Where am I, queried Germain, refraining politely from delving into this likable fellow's mind. This is Agartha, replied the other. You will be duly indoctrinated as soon as possible, for there is no time to waste. Our common enemy grows stronger and bolder with each passing day. What is it you want me to do, asked Germain? We do not know, replied the other. It is it is in the prophecy that you will do some great deed to help us, to strengthen our arm against the Duro. And we await this need anxiously, for we know that the Duro are quickly gathering forces to strike a deadly blow at the surface world. What it is and what, it been and what you will do to help us must remain to be seen. Now... Germain thought to himself for a moment, and then a smile suddenly lighted his face. I've been playing around with a crazy idea, he thought back to the king of the world. Maybe you fellows are just the ones to help me out. The gathered scientists, who were also aware of Germain's telepathic message, looked to their leader in open admiration. The last link of the prophecy, they said to him. The king of the world 
only smiled and reached out his hand to help Jermaine to his feet. Now, Kent, now that the Michael Kent is, 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 is the one that's being initiated, Jermaine is, a, is another uh, tarot character, but Michael Kent is, is the one that's being initiated through the towers. Michael Kent felt now that there were no further depths into which despair could sink. He had just received an official message in Miami that Lillian had been lost in action, and she was not on the list of those killed. She was reported missing, and she had been missing for more than a week. And there could be little doubt that uh, she had been killed because half of her outfit had been wiped out in the recent Russian-Asiatic combined bombing raid on, on Havana. Kent slumped down. This is beginning to sound like one of Doctor Who's episodes. If you, if you guys uh, listening, if you're, you're, you're old uh, fans of Doctor Who, because he used to talk about future wars, you know. And uh, <laughs> one time I remember Doctor Who. Doctor Who was uh, going on and on about being in Iceland when the when the Mongolians invaded Iceland or something like that. Um, he saw America's defeat. His most cherished friends were called out, gone from his life. There was nothing left for which to live. He turned out his light and lay back in the darkness, enveloped in a dull stupor that was induced by bitterness and sorrow. He had never bawled since passing his 12th birthday. But as he fought to swallow, a stinging lump in his throat, he wondered if that record was about to be broken. Take hold of yourself, old man, he said. Kent knew that intruding mentality. He opened his eyes wide in the dark, his heart suddenly leaping in double time. Steve, he gasped aloud, my God, you're still alive. Very much so. Thanks to a very fine group of friends I've run into, replied replied Germain. And this is... So now we're back now. Now we're back with Jermaine. And he's telepathically communicating with Kent. Kent was puzzled by the faintness of the telepathic reception. Those thoughts seemed to be coming from the greatest distance than that which lay between Bolivia and Florida. No, replied Jermaine, reading the thoughts. I'm no longer in, in Santa Cruz. To tell you where I am would be... Uh, to tell you where I am or where Lillian is. Lillian, exclaimed Clint. You mean to say that we're wasting time? Come, Jermaine's thoughts said. Lillian is alive, but in grave danger, and so is the world. And I am working to save them both, and you may be able to help me. Thank God she's still alive, Steve, said Chad. But how could I possibly help you? You know I'm willing, and I'd give my life in a split second for you and Lillian, but I feel so cockeyed, puny, and helpless. You won't be after you've been indoctrinated. What's that? You could be of no help to us until you have been indoctrinated. I wish they'd said initiated because indoctrination is a, is a negative term. Prepare for a psychic experience. It will be uh, quite a heavy one, but you've got to start at once. Close your eyes and relax. You're about to become a privileged visitor to the Seven Towers. You know, I could have cut right to this tower thing, but 
but I thought I'd, you know, I thought maybe we better set it up in, in, in with the story. Ken had no time to reply, slumber, and began to have a dream that seemed to be reality itself. He felt himself cold as though up a black and nebulous hill, out of darkness into dim bluish light. He stood as though in another world or dimension. It was beyond his full comprehension. In all this world, there was nothing except him and a bluish sky devoid of sun, moon, or stars. He was a lone entity in an endless waste. He stood as though on a blue cloud which stretched toward an unseeable distance without horizon. Compelled to do so by an extraneous force, he walked forward, not knowing toward what. Soon, however, there emerged out of the nothingness, as though it were a mirage, a gigantic mountain in the blue mist. The mountain seemed man-made, for it was geometrically terraced or pyramided in six giant steps. Before him, beside the first gigantic step, was a massive-looking tower, windowless, uninviting. Its soaring top was on a level with the first step. And up on the first step, he saw another tower, which began where the first had left off. And its top, in turn, reached the second step of the mountain. And above these, he counted five more towers. He thought they faded upward into the mists of distance. Chapter 10, The Seven Towers. As he looked at them, he knew that his purpose in this strange place was to climb these towers one by one. And although, again, he knew not why, he walked forward and approached the first massive structure which stood at the base of of the mighty mountain, the first tower. He stepped through the portals into vastness. The interior of the tower was like the interior of the mountain, nay, of the very world, or did he see infinity itself stretch out before him? There was something which strangely distorted his vision as he walked into the tower and across its sagging floor. He seemed to grow smaller. The floor seemed to curve downward into a steep bowl of foggy night. It was an exceedingly unpleasant sensation, but he pushed onward, driven by an irresistible force. Faster he walked, yet smaller he grew, and further the distance seemed, and also sounds of fog darkened his mind. Shrouds of fog darkened his mind, and he fought against it. He was so tiny now that the walls of the tower were lost to his sight. He walked as though through eternity into the subcosmos. After walking, it seemed forever, he came to what he knew was his immediate destination. There on the floor at the bottom of the bowl, not ten feet from him, was a strange little man who sat on a red-yellow carpet, smoking a water pipe. But he was only an inch high, and as Ken approached him, with each step he himself grew smaller, until when he was at last, when he at last stood next to the man, 
he was no taller than than the little man was. The man was old. His nose was red, his eyes faded blue. He wore the costume of a fool, a jester, complete with curled-up shoe toes and bells. Who are you, he asked, asked this little man. The other jingled his bells and said, I am man. Well, so am I, man, retorted Kent, but, oh, laughed the jester, bells clanging cheaply and dissonantly. But you thought you were a god, a superior being, whose science and wisdom encompassed all things knowable. There could be nothing new under the sun for you because you could always reduce the unknowable to conform with what you could understand. This method of self-blinding you called science. The fool sprang to his feet, did a clumsy somersault, and made a clumsier curtsy. But only this you really are, and only because... You are so vain in what you consider to be your worldly knowledge. In order to see yourself face to face as you truly are, you had to grow smaller to a size which is unimaginably small. Man, for all his vanity, is a cheap, self-deceived, and self-blinded fool. Kent grew angry. Pride leaped within him, and he lunged at the irritating jack-in-the-box. But the jacks, but but Jack sprang out of the box and was suddenly nowhere to be seen. Kent had turned around to see a swampland stretching out behind him. He knew it was mental trickery, but he was forced to appreciate its reality to his mortal sense senses. There on the shore before him sat a huge, stupid-looking frog. Rump, broke the frog. I am the wisest of all creatures in the universe. The universe, of course, is the swamp. I have lived here for three score years and ten. I know every pebble in it, every clump, every rushes, every rotten log, every turtle, and every fly. There is, therefore, nothing more to know. And since I possess all knowledge, I am the greatest of all living creatures. There is no greater perfection. Just then, a very incongruous thing occurred. Kent saw a fleet of four-motored bombers and miniatures sail right through the frog. They came out of the nothingness and went into it. Immediately, he was moved to call the frog's bluff. He smiled proudly. Well, what about four-motored bombers and all the modern technology in them and their electronic controls? What do you know about that, old frog who thinks he is so great? Hump, rump, said the frog. As unperturbed as a mountain. Since I know all things already, I cannot accept the possibility of the existence of things outside of the sphere of my knowledge. What you mention is impossible. It cannot be. In fact, it angers me to hear such an idea even expressed. The thought is entirely revolting. You should be ostracized for not accepting present concepts as they are. The frog and the swamp then disappeared and Kent found himself surrounded by a myriad of jesters, jingling their bells and leering at him. Impossible, impossible, they chanted in a mad, discordant song. It cannot be. Why can't it be? Because it wasn't before, and therefore it's impossible. Impossible, impossible, they roared, until Kent had to hold his ears. Then came a clap of thunder, a blinding flash of lightning, and Kent staggered back. Towering mightily above him was a giant jester who stared angrily down at him, legs spread apart, arms akimbo. 
And when he spoke, his voice rang hollowly through the tower, as though it were a voice of death inside a vast tomb. Man, man, when will you ever know that while you sit like a self-satisfied frog in your slough of ignorance, there are things so much vaster than you passing around your head that they shrivel you into insignificance of dust. Wake up, open those eyes, which you yourself have willfully shut. Your only chance for veining stature is uh, is an upward climb in greater knowledge. So climb, man, climb. Before Kent appeared a spiral staircase, and he ran to it readily because he he wanted nothing more than to be out of this place. He ran up the stairs, and as he climbed, he climbed them, he grew larger, until it seemed undignified for him to run. And by the time he came to the exit on the roof of the tower, he walked with the calmness of a neophyte in, in godliness. He was leaving all man's blinding ignorance below in the pit of vanity. He had graciously opened his mind to truth, and he some and he knew somehow that the beginnings of the great truths and revelations would be found in the second tower. And he came out through the tower's roof and looked over the parapet at the mist of the world below, and he could see nothing. Somehow he felt elevated spiritually, and he took it as a sign of good that he could no longer see the mists which he had left behind. He crossed a perilously narrow bridge and passed between two massive pillars to the second tower. And I think we will leave the rest of the towers possibly until next week. Let let, let me consider that, whether or not we want to do that. Perhaps we will uh, uh, do, well, we'll certainly do something related to this next week. Meanwhile, that should keep your brain stimulated until we meet again on uh, next Thursday. And until then, good magic.